Well, thank you, Kate. That was the perfect song to really get our hearts and minds ready for what I'm about to talk about. If you would, um, join me in prayer as I pray for you and pray for me as well. Father God, we do come before you and, and we submit our hearts and our minds and our lives to you, to you, the, the great potter. And we do ask you to use this message to mold us and shape us into the men and women who you want us to be. I pray for anyone here who might be struggling to pay attention. Perhaps they are distracted by sin. Lord, that your Holy Spirit will really help them to pull that aside and to listen to the word that it might be implanted into their souls. And Lord, may you just do a tremendous work in the hearts of all of us. Help me to preach in a way that brings glory and honor to you alone, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that your first job says a lot about you. And so it's with reluctance that I share with you my first job. I was a dishwasher at Joe's Barn Country Buffet in Stillwell, Kansas. It was actually a a giant red barn where people from miles around would gather to eat some questionable food. In fact, a state agency might have shut it down. I don't know, but all I know is that property that used to be Joe's Barn is now a tire changing center which is probably a good thing for the good people of Kansas. Now, the thing about being a dishwasher at a buffet is that people don't necessarily lick their plates clean. For instance, if you were to work at the Olive Garden, all you have to do is basically run, that wa- run the dish underneath some warm water and you can just put it back on the floor. Not that we ever did that. But people would just lick those plates clean. But with a buffet, people feel this compulsion to waste food after they have gorged themselves. So they are now stuffed, but they decided, I need to get my money's worth. And so they make another round through the buffet line. They get mashed potatoes, green beans, pink jello mold, and they'll actually swirl it together with a partially eaten rib bone. And so I would take these culinary experiments and actually scrape them into two giant trash cans, and by the end of the night, there would be two full trash cans of culinary experiments, which I would have to unload. On top of that, there was the help. Uh, two of my co-workers were named Jim, Bob, and Bolu. Well, actually, Jim, Bob, and Bolu weren't their real names, <laughs> but they responded to that, which says something. Apparently, these men were legal experts who informed me that they have a constitutional right to take a smoke break every 15 minutes for about 15 minutes. (laughs) They were very skilled at, at tossing chicken bones at each other, and they discovered that those little tiny personal country crock spreadable butter canisters make a nice projectile if you squeeze them just right. So between scraping off the food, getting nailed in the back with chicken bones and spreadable butter... I decided I had about six weeks to take a break and to seek gainful employment elsewhere. But I learned some valuable lessons. Number one, if you can help and never work at a dishwasher, as a dishwasher in a buffet for $4 an hour. Number two, finish college. <laughs> so since then, I've been blessed with other jobs. For instance, I was a customer relations and exchange agent at McDonald's. It was a cashier, but it looks better on a resume when you put it that way. (laughs) I was a maintenance man, lifeguard, salesman, missionary, and pastor, but all of those were really ancillary to what my true calling is, being a fisher of men. Now, if I were to ask you, what do you do for a living? Many of you would say, I'm a homemaker, I'm a student, engineer, fireman, police officer, teacher, lawyer, realtor, etc., But let me put it another way. Let's change that question. What should you do for a living? At the end of your life, what do you want to have to show for yourself? When you stand before the Lord, what are you going to present to him as your life work? What has God 
called you to do. Now, Christian, it is my firm conviction that God has called you to be more than a student or a homemaker or a realtor or a lawyer. The calling that he has for you is nobler than rescuing men and women from burning, bu- burning buildings. It's more noble than bringing order to this fair city. It is more important than alleviating suffering through the medical arts. You have been commissioned by our Lord and Savior to rescue souls from eternal damnation. You have been called to be heralds of the coming king, announcing that he will return and calling traitors to reconcile with their true master. You have been called to be fishers of men. Now, I will assume that most of you sense a need to share your faith. In fact, right now I could stop preaching and you'd all walk away very convicted. But I want to do more than that today. I know that you all understand that you're called to be fishers of men, but how do you do it? What I want to do is I want to look at an encounter which Jesus had with his disciples. His call to discipleship. It took Jesus three years from that point to transform this motley band of merry fishermen into a cadre of soul winning machines, but he did so. And it started somewhere. It started with the call. And so what we're going to do is we are going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And in doing so, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three commitments of a soul winner. So that you will be more than convicted about sharing your faith. Rather, you will develop a life plan to become fishers of men. Three commitments of a soul winner so that you will develop a life plan to become fishers of men. Matthew four eighteen through 22. Read with me. Now, as Jesus was walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, from this passage, we're going to learn about those three commitments of a soul winner. Number one, to be a soul winner, you must commit to Christ's authority. To be a soul winner, you must commit to Christ's authority. Two, you must commit to Christ's instruction. To be a soul winner, you must commit yourself to Christ's instruction. And finally, to be a soul winner, you must commit yourself to labor as a fisherman. I'll reiterate these points as we move on. But let's talk about the first point. You must commit yourself to Christ's authority. Now, in this passage, it seems almost surreal We see Jesus, the the perfect stranger, walking along the beach. And then in your imagination, you can almost see him with a tractor beam-like gaze, call out to Andrew and Peter and say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Then Andrew and Simon stand up like zombies and obey their master. But there was more to it. It's not like he just made eye contact with them and then they stood up and followed him. There was actually a prior history to their relationship. And we see this in John chapter 1, 35 through 42. This took place about a year earlier where the disciples, the future disciples, actually fishermen, made a journey south to sit under the teaching of John the Baptist and hear what he had to say about this future kingdom. And they had this encounter. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus and Jesus turned and he saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now this happened a year earlier. These men were devout Jews who went down to Bethany beyond the Jordan to listen to this man named John the Baptist talk about this coming kingdom, how he must repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as they are with John the Baptist, he sees a stranger and points him out as the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sins of the world. Therefore, John, who is the unnamed disciple, and Andrew go and they follow Jesus, leaving John the Baptist, recognizing that John the Baptist all along was pointing to someone greater. Andrew goes back and gets Simon Peter, and they attach themselves following Jesus. While Jesus was ministering in Judea, they, they were able to witness Jesus transforming the water into wine and other miracles. And at the end of this tour of duty, they went back to Galilee, Galilee to resume fishing. Now, this was not a cop-out. It was very normal for people who are learning under a rabbi to acquire a trade and still sustain themselves through secular occupations. For instance, Paul was training under Gamaliel, and it was during that time most people speculate that he learned how to become a tent maker. So they were not being unfaithful. They just finished a tour of duty, but things began to change. In Matthew 4.12, we read this. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, John the Baptist had the audacity to criticize the wife of Herod. Consequently, the king, who did not like to have his wife insulted, threw John the Baptist into prison. And at this point, the spiritual dynamics of Israel began to change. We're following John the Baptist led to persecution. So Jesus retreats up north to continue his ministry. And so now these disciples, when they hear Jesus saying, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, have a choice to make. Because they knew that if John the Baptist was thrown into prison for criticizing the rulers, his threat to the powers that be was nothing compared to Jesus who was the Messiah, who was going to be a rival king, that following Jesus Christ could mean suffering, and no doubt it did. More than that, to drop their nets and follow Christ might lead to a life of poverty. We know from the parallel passage in Mark chapter 1, verse 20, that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, actually had hired servants. They had a fishing enterprise, They may not have been wealthy, but they might have been middle class. And they were going to leave that behind, take a life of poverty to follow this man. They had a choice to make. Jesus approaches them and he says, follow me. Now, how they respond to this command lets you know about their theology of Jesus Christ. To disobey this call would be to suggest that Jesus is unworthy to be followed. He has to disobey is to say that you don't own me. You have no authority over my life. To disobey this call is to say, Jesus, I have better things to do. Not now. I'm busy. But by obeying this, they affirm his authority. They say, you are the Messiah. You are the king. You make the rules. And they acknowledge that. And as a result, they obey. See, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had more than just mere intellectual knowledge of who Jesus was. They backed it up with a sincere and deep heart commitment. Now, in the same way, how do you respond to Christ's authority? 
When Jesus gives you a command, when you read a command in the scripture, what is your ready response? See, a lot of us might know a lot about theology, but we learn an important principle here. See, it's not enough to to understand that you are a sinner. He deserves everlasting punishment. It is not enough to know that God sent his one and only son who made a provision for your sin. It is not enough to know that Christ died suffering hell on earth in your place. It is not enough to know that Christ was risen from the dead and is now reigning asking you to follow him. It is not enough to know that you are not saved by works but by grace. It is not enough to know that you need to repent. See, to follow Christ, you must make an absolute commitment. Not just following him for a short while, but permanently. Consider Jesus' own words. In Luke 9, 23-24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those are firm words, aren't they? For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. In other words, you must repent and give your life to Christ no matter the cost. Paul affirms this in Acts 17.30 where he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, if you have never repented of your sins... If you have never truly understood the work of Christ, if you've had the mistaken perception that you can earn your way into heaven and it's only now that you realize that it's only by Christ, if you've never truly believed that that you deserve eternal damnation for what you have done against God, if you've never pleaded with God for forgiveness, if you've never surrendered your life, you do not know the Lord. It's more than lip service to theology. It's about absolute commitment. It is about committing yourselves to seeing Christ as your authority and following him in faith. It is a faith that God gives you that enables you to trust in the promises of God to save your soul. It's a faith that God gives you to take him at his word. It's a faith that God gives you to obey his word. And without saving faith, you will never be a soul winner. In the words of the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, fish will not be fishers. The sinner will not convert the sinner. The ungodly man will not convert the unholy man. And what is more to the point, the worldly Christian will not convert the world. To be a soul winner, to save souls, your soul must be saved. Our salvation in Christ is a very backbone of the gospel. It is a recognition of Christ's authority. Now, for those of you who have Christ as your Lord and you see him as your authority, I rejoice. But there's more work to do. If you have made a commitment to Christ and to obey his commands, you must obey the command to be a soul winner. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, if you are saved yourself, the work is but half done until you are employed to bring others to Christ. You are as yet but half formed in the image of your Lord. You have not attained to the full development of the Christ life in you unless you have commenced in some feeble way to tell others of the grace of God. And I trust that you will find no rest to the sole of your foot until you have been the means of leading many to that blessed Savior who is your confidence and your hope. The disciples had to follow Jesus. They had to submit themselves to his prerogative for their life. And I will argue that part of the call to discipleship is to become a fisher of men. To be trained for the evangelistic enterprise of taking the gospel to all nations. Now someone who is an evangelistic skeptic will look at this passage and say, Isn't he just talking to Peter, Andrew, James, and John? I don't, I don't see myself in this passage. How can you say that, that we need to obey God's commandments to, to share the gospel to all nations? Well, let me make my point. What Jesus is establishing here is the issue of authority. Notice in verse 20, Jesus gives a command, and in verse 20, 
immediately they left their nets and followed him. When Christ speaks, people obey. Andrew and Simon Peter obeyed. First time obedience. I know with my little girl, if I say, Julia, come here. I don't want her to dawdle. I don't want her to pick up other toys. I don't want her to walk into another room. I don't want her to walk to, to her mama. I want her to walk to me, to obey me, to recognize the authority as a parent which God has given me. In the same way, when, when God calls you to do something, when he tells you to obey, you don't dawdle, you do it. Look further in, in John chapter 20, or I'm sorry, Matthew 4.21. In the call of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. They left their vocation. They also left their dad. Jesus is making it very clear that he has more authority than Zebedee. Now, if you have a general who summons a private to come to him at once, and a colonel who summons the same private, to whom does a private report? The general. If the private does anything less than run to the general, there is a serious breach of protocol. So when Jesus calls you to do something, it means you must submit to his authority over and above everyone else's. See, this is why we can disobey the government to share our faith. Because we answer to Jesus before we answer to the government. This is why if our employer tells us we cannot share our faith with any employers on or off the job, we need to submit to Jesus and not to them. See, knowing that Jesus is the ultimate authority should cause us to weigh his words very carefully. But there's a greater issue here. Does Jesus confine the scope of the evangelistic ministry to just the apostles? Or to just evangelism pastors and other people who are good at it. Well, I'll argue something. If you look at how Matthew lays out his gospel and the calls to discipleship, evangelism is front and center. What you see in in Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus' first encounter with the apostles. The first encounter that Matthew records deals with Jesus summoning them to become fishers of men. That is the first bookend. You look at the last bookend to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and you see something incredible. In Matthew 18, 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came up and he spoke to them. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Notice the authority. Jesus is not mincing words here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with always, even to the end of the earth. Now, it is no accident that the first call to the disciples and the last call to the disciples centers on one, on one thing, and that is to be a fisher of men and to share your faith. Jesus, in essence, is saying, as your supreme king your majestic sovereign, your ruler and your emperor, take heed to what I'm about to tell you. You must make disciples of all nations. And how do you do that? By baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Now, was it just me or did Jesus command the apostles to become fishers of men? Did he just command them to go and make disciples of all nations? See, if those apostles must teach us everything they learned from Jesus, that would include the command to share our faith. That is the command to, to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to be fishers of men. See, brothers and sisters, God has given you a divine directive to share your faith. He has called you to be fishers of men, and you have a choice, just like the disciples did. You can obey or disobey. Now, a few weeks ago, the Compass and College Ministry had the esteemed privilege of welcoming Dr. Vladimir Shemchishin, who is a president of Odessa Theological Seminary. He is a, was an extremely godly and gifted man who grew up in a Christian family. In fact, his grandfather was a pastor 
and he told an unforgettable account of his life. Vladimir's grandfather was a pastor back in the Dark Ages, back when the Soviet Union forbid all proclamation of the gospel. One day, the KGB, the secret police, came into the church, and they had him arrested. And they sent Vladimir's grandfather to Siberia. And his family never saw him again. A few years later, some prisoners who were at the same prison camp gave an incredible account of how he finished his days. He was an elderly man when he was arrested, and he was put in the brutal conditions of the Siberian prison camp. When his body could no longer function anymore, and he was more of a liability to the prison camp, the guards took him, stripped him naked, and threw him outside the camp, where he was greeted by a pack of dogs. What's even more interesting is that the KJB and the people who ran the camp told him that we will release you if you agree to not preach the gospel. Now that seems like a man who's pretty convinced that God told him to share his faith. That was a man who wagered his life on it. See, in Christian, God has called you to do the same thing and how sad it is that we submit to the culture that dictates that it is rude to talk about politics and religion. That if you share your faith, it creates an awkward work environment. So it's better to just let your light shine so that you can still work with your fellow co-workers and there'll be harmony and peace in the workplace. Essentially, many of us have capitulated to just becoming harmless Christians. You know, we are... We live good, clean, moral lives. We go to church and we never laugh at those filthy jokes. And so people come up to us and they say, nice, harmless Christian. They just kind of pet us as if we're some sort of domesticated animal, which is what we are. But the one way that you will be persecuted in America is not by believing the gospel. It's by sharing the gospel. If you tell other people to flee from the wrath to come, you will be persecuted. You look at Acts chapter 5. James, or I'm sorry, it was John and Peter were arrested. They were sent to the Sanhedrin for, for teaching about Jesus being the Messiah. And they censure them. And you know what they censure them for? It's not, you need to stop believing this at once. They didn't care. Their greater concern was that these people were telling others about it. See, no one's going to persecute you for believing that Jesus is the only way to God. No one's going to persecute you for believing the authority of the Bible. They will persecute you if you tell other people that you must believe the same thing. Otherwise, you will go to hell. That is why Christians suffer. And that is what the Lord has called us to. And God knows it's difficult. God knows it's hard. The people who died for their faith spreading the gospel, they know it's difficult. I'm sure Vladimir's grandfather didn't necessarily enjoy the last years of his life. People don't like it when they get dirty looks from people that they've shared the gospel with or when people start calling them Bible thumper or people ostracize them. People don't like it when they're no longer invited or welcomed to family functions. It's not fun. And God knows that. And God promises to be with you. But God has promised to always be with you. So will you be a soul winner? Are willing to count the cost of discipleship and be persecuted for obeying his commandment? If you are, you need to make the second commitment. You must commit to Christ's instruction. Now, in My Fair Lady, the play or the movie, depending on how cultured you are, I guess, or musical, the misogynistic and and snobbish phonetics professor, Henry Higgins, agrees to a wager that he can take a cockneyed flower girl, Eliza Eliza Doolittle, (laughs) they'd watch the movie more often, huh? And make her presentable to high society. 
through coaching, through training, he is going to make her an elite aristocrat. Now, Jesus had a similar challenge. He was going to take these motley group of fishermen who were crass in their speech, rough in their behavior, and were less than socially refined. See, fishing was a laborious and taxing activity that really drew the blue collar among them. And if you ever get men and you put them together for extended periods of time, they tend to get a little bit out of touch after a while. Isn't that right? In the same way, these were not learned men. These were not tactful, gracious, eloquent men. These were just Joe anybody. And God takes them and he transforms them. Look at verse 19. Jesus says something that's that's very interesting. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Did you catch that? Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Essentially, Jesus assumes the responsibility for training them and transforming them to become soul winners. See, the rest of the the Gospel of Matthew really details how this is done. In Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives them specific instruction as to what the kingdom of heaven will be like. He tells them about his role and his relationship with the law, the higher ethics to which he calls them to, and the true nature of a kingdom saint. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus takes this band of disciples and he says, I am now sending you out to the lost sheep of Israel. He gives them specific instructions on how to share their faith and how to go from house to house. They come back. He teaches them some more. And then at the end of the gospel with the great commission, he sends them out to all nations to make disciples of all men. He trains them. He instructs them. And when you look at this pattern, It's fourfold. First, he calls them. Second, he trains them, teaches them. Then he trains them. He sends them out. Then he sends them out for good. So it's calling, teaching, training, and sending. Now you look at our church. I would assume that if you are a Christian, you have been called to be a fisher of men. We have that taken care of. But you look at just your regular attendance and how Jack faithfully preaches about the character of God, the expectations that God gives you, the nature of the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to learn and discern what is right and wrong from the scriptures, the nature of the atonement, what to expect during the end times, you are getting a tremendous theological education. The second as- the third aspect, as far as training, we have evangelism classes. We have people who go out street preaching where you can just watch other people who know what they're doing, how they share their faith. You can watch videos like The Way of the Master. You can also contact me if you ever want to go out witnessing. Sorry, ladies, I don't go out with ladies, just the men. You can also just ask somebody who's older and knowledgeable and have them take you witnessing. There's plenty of opportunities if you want the training, we offer it. And then as far as sending you out to be fishers of men through maturity, through growth, you will reach that point. Remember, it took the disciples three years before they reached that point. God is patient with you. But what must happen first is you must commit yourself. You must make that same commitment that disciples made to be fishers of men. Now, I know that many of you might object and say, you know what, Dave, I'm not smart enough. To share the gospel. I, there's so many smart people out there. And they just give these objections. That just blow me away. And I'm just speechless and stupefied. I can't do that. Or perhaps you think that you're, you're too timid. To preach boldly. You're just too scared. You start to shake and stutter. When you start sharing your faith with other people. Or you believe that you're going to flood the gospel presentation. We're going to leave out the part. About being saved by grace. Or forget to mention repentance. Or perhaps you feel like you're too old and your memory is too faulty. Or perhaps you're too young and no one is going to listen to what you have to say. Well, brothers and sisters, if those are your thoughts, I have some news for you. You are perfect candidates to be a soul winner. 
If you believe you are too weak, too afraid, and too incompetent, you are a perfect candidate to be an evangelist. I'll show my point. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he may nullify the things that are. And so that no man may boast before God. Now, depending on how you look at it, this is either the most encouraging or discouraging verse in the Bible. Because according to this passage, if you are a Christian, you are not wise, you're foolish, you're base. Essentially, you're an idiot, albeit a happy idiot. (laughs) But what we learn is God likes using the fearful, the weak, the incompetent, because it gives God the most glory. Let's say you're out there, you're sharing your faith, you are stuttering, you are shaking, you are sweating, you have sweaty palms, you're just pitting out. I mean, it is just, you're just a mess. And you manage, by the skin of your teeth, to just spit out a basic gospel presentation, the guy gets saved. Now, can you take credit for that? Not at all. You'll have no choice but to say, God was faithful to call him into repentance. See, God likes using foolish people. God likes using happy idiots. God likes using the incompetent and the fearful because that gives God the glory. So brothers and sisters, don't let your own weakness hold you back. Gladys Alward was a woman who was born in 1902 in England. Now one day as a young lady, she walked by this church and saw this this big banner that advertised a missionary speaker. So she went inside and this missionary was talking about China and the tremendous work of God that was happening in that country. And she committed then and there that God has called her to be a missionary to China. So she enlisted with China Inland Mission Training School and she was not the best student. In fact, at the end of her days at the training school, some people pulled her aside and said, Gladys, you're not missionary material. But you know what she did? She went anyway. On her own expense, she went over to China and she met up with a woman who owned an inn. And there she worked at the inn, engaged in some sort of a semblance of a gospel ministry until the lady who owned the inn died. And here Gladys was in China, forced to find some means of supporting herself and supporting the inn. Well, it just so happened that a member of the Chinese government approached her and said, we would like you to help us to enforce a new law which the government just passed. Essentially, it was now illegal for the Chinese to bind their little girl's feet. And so she was to go around from country to country and village to village to make sure that no one was engaging in that barbaric practice. And she said, I will accept that under the condition that I have the full freedom to share my faith. They consented. She went from village to village sharing the gospel. And as a result, churches were started. Believers were converted. In fact, they made a movie out of it. The Inn of Six Happiness starring Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman, from what I understand, was so inspired by the story that she looked up Gladys Alward and asked her to come for a meeting. And it was there, according to what I've heard, that Gladys led Ingrid Bergman to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? If God can take a missionary reject and make her a church planter, a soul winner, if God can take a motley group of fishermen and turn them into apostles who argued with the Sanhedrin and the intellectual elites of the ancient Near East and who wrote the scriptures... If God can take a piece of dirt and transform it into a man, if he could take nothing and make the universe, he can turn you and make you into a soul winner. All you have to do is say, Lord, I am willing. 
I am weak. I am incompetent. I'm an idiot. I am not smart. I am timid and I am afraid. But Lord, here and now on March 19th, I commit my life to be trained to be a soul winner. Offer yourself up to the potter's hands. Let him shape you, mold you, and make you into a soul-winning machine. It just starts with commitment. God can change you. And then thirdly, once you make that commitment, learn to never give up. You must commit yourself to, to labor as a fisherman. Now, most of us think that fishing is a rather relaxing activity. You throw a little worm on the hook. You just have to figure out how to tie the knot. That's the trickiest part of fishing. You put a little bobber on. You cast it. You take a nap. Suck down a root beer. Call it a day. That's fishing. But in the ancient Near East, fishing was a laborious task. In fact, I'm going to show you some slides. See, what they did was they were were actually cast net fishermen. Where they would take a, a cast net, which is about 18 to 25 foot in diameter with, with little lead weights around the perimeter. So you would, you would throw it into the ocean or throw it into the sea. You can show the next slide. See them gripping it on, on the right hand. They'd hurl it into the sea and it actually make kind of a parachute-like net. You can show the next slide too. That's what a modern cast net looks like. It would sink to the bottom and trap all the fish underneath. And at that point, you could retrieve the fish in three possible ways. One, you can dive down and actually grab the fish and squeeze them through the net and then take them to the surface one by one. Or you can gently take the the little lead weights and move them gently over the rocks until you can pinch the bottom of it and then take it up to the surface. Or you can throw it out and then very gently drag the net back to the shore. Sounds tedious, doesn't it? But you do that over and over and over and over again. And that was your occupation. Essentially, all you needed to do is learn how to cast the net and to have some knowledge of where the fish are, and you could be a fisherman. But to be a successful fisherman, it required a lot more than just knowledge. If you were a successful fisherman, you would have to labor intensely. If you had a family to feed, you would cast the net, and if you didn't catch anything, you cast it again. And you cast it again and again and again. And people would fish all day and all night, throwing a heavy water-laden net into the sea, and then pulling it back. And often, they would get no results. Now, it was interesting. When I was in seminary, Pastor Montoya... You might have heard of him. He is my, one of my preaching professors, but he gave us a, an assignment. He told us that by the end of the semester, every seminary student in his class had to lead one person to Christ. You either passed or you failed that assignment based on the results. It was either 100% or nothing. And what was interesting is to see the whole class just respond to it, saying, hey, there's no way we, we have that kind of control. Isn't God the one who leads people to Christ? Yeah, they just dismissed it. But he said, hey, you've got to do it. And then he said this. He who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. And you know what? With two weeks left in the semester, when people didn't lead anyone to Christ, they went on personal evangelistic crusades, casting that net over and over and over again until they got one. But you look at it. Let's say you decide to be a cast net fisherman. You, you, you buy the net, you buy the tackle, you, you watch the training video, and you're able to, to cast a perfect parachute-like net. You buy a boat. You buy a trailer. You buy an outboard motor. And you wake up at the crack of dawn with the new truck that you bought to, buy the, to haul the trailer. And you go up to Lake Castaic. You find the perfect fishing spot, and you throw the net into the lake. You wait, just like the video told you to. You pull it back, and you don't catch anything. So you say, ah, forget it, and you leave. Does that make any sense at all? But isn't that how we respond when we don't have success in evangelism? See, success in evangelism is not about the perfect cast. It's about tenacity. It's about laboring like a fisherman doing it again and again and again. Until you catch something. You might have to fish all night and all year, casting the net hundreds and thousands of times before you get one convert, but you keep doing it because that is what God has called you to do. 
So a lot of this, I want to give you a little, uh, little help as far as how you can cast your nets. Some quick evangelism strategies. This is not exhaustive, but hopefully you'll walk away with one or two things that you can just embrace, put into your, your little holster and use it when you need to. So when you're talking to people, how do you cast a net? How do you transition into the gospel? Which is, I would say most of us could probably share the gospel, but how do you bridge that gap? You know, how do you get from talking about baseball to Jesus Christ and being rescued from hell? Yeah, there's, there's this big space here. Well, here you go. You're talking to a friend or a coworker, and they mention that someone they know is sick. Their mother is sick. So you say, you know what? I'll pray for you about that and say, thank you. Non-Christians really like it when Christians pray for them because they feel like they have a, a lucky charm. It's true. I remember in college, people would ask me to pray for their test all the time because apparently they did better when I prayed for them. But then this is what you do. You follow up on them. Say, hey, I was praying for that test or I've been praying for your mom. How did that go? And then they tell you about it. Oh, I've also been praying for your spiritual life. How's that going? And they bring, in, uh, bring out the gospel. Here's another one. Hey, what did you end up doing last weekend? Oh, we went boating at Lake Castaig. We were actually cast fishing. Oh, that's nice. What did you do? Oh, we went to church. Then you can bring up the gospel that way. You can schedule, uh, you can ask them a question. Do you, do you ever think about spiritual things? And just listen. Listen to them talk about God, their religion, what they believe. You don't have to share the gospel right away, but you at least build some kind of spiritual context to bring it up later. You could schedule a lunch with them and say, you know, I've been thinking about you quite a bit and I wanted to share something that was very important to me and is very important for me to tell you. And would you mind if I just share with you the most important thing in my life? And you share the gospel. And then you pick up the tab afterwards. Just a little extra. You know, whatever it takes. You invite your neighbors over for dinner and do the same thing. You just talk to people. Be friendly. I know uh, whenever I go to the park, I always make sure to feature prominent sports paraphernalia, like my Chicago Bears sweatshirt or Cubs sweatshirt. And my wife thinks I'm crazy because apparently only people, the only people who wear sports paraphernalia in L.A. are gang members, but I, I'm never confused for one of those. Praise the Lord. So I wear it, and I'll, and I'll be wearing my Chicago Cubs sweatshirt, and I look across the way, and there's a man with a Green Bay Packers hat on. And I think, he's from the Midwest. And so I go over, I talk to him, we talk about sports, the Packers, Bears, Cubs. And I say, hey, are you from Wisconsin? Oh, yeah, I grew up there. Oh, what brought you out here? Oh, I'm working for the studios now. Where are you from? I tell him where I'm from. Oh, what brought you out here? Oh, I'm in, I went to seminary out here, and now I'm a pastor. Now, I realize I'm kind of cheating with me being a pastor and everything. But again, you just talk to people, engage people, strike up conversations. Just try to develop some, cor- some sort of way to cast your net and experiment. Now, for those of you who want to do something a little bit easier, you can just do a distribution strategy. For instance, you can come up to them and say, hey, I have an interesting article for you to read. I have an evangelistic article or perhaps one of our one of our gospel tracts that you can take as many as you want as long as you promise to give them away. So I have something very interesting for, the, for you to read. Why don't you read this and we could talk about it tomorrow. Or you can give them a, a gospel message on CD. I know Jack has preached the gospel many times. You can burn it onto it and you could just give it to them and say, hey, why don't you leave, listen to this on your ride home and we could talk about it next week. Or if you ever walk by a convertible, you can just kind of you know, pop out the CD and replace it with the gospel message. <laughs> Whatever it takes, just don't take the CD and hope the alarm doesn't go off, right? You could, uh, if you're text messaging someone or you have an email relationship with them, in a few weeks, what we're planning on doing is actually getting a gospel message on video on the web. And so what you can do is you can just email people and say, why don't you click on this link and watch this video and we could talk about it. And then you'll have a five-minute gospel presentation for them to do it. If, if you don't believe you can do it, have somebody else or give them other material that does it a little bit more clearly. Finally, those people who you might find very difficult to talk to, who whenever you bring up spiritual things, you just see these force fields just, and you can't get by them. What do you do with that? Write them an evangelistic letter. They have a tendency to read those, express your concern for their soul, share the gospel with them, and then see what happens. At least the gospel is getting out in some 
manner. And I can help you write that if you'd like. But above all, learn to share your faith frequently and often. Now, brothers and sisters, be encouraged that we as a church and as our church leadership want this church to be about evangelism. We want it to permeate our church culture. We don't want to be keepers of the aquarium where we see some other church that is leaking and the water is going down and rescuing the fish from that church and transforming them to our aquarium. We want to go out and win more souls. Imagine what would happen to this church if every one of you led one person to Christ this next year. Wouldn't that be incredible? In fact, we had an elder meeting last Thursday and we, we talked about the need for our church to do evangelism and, and the elders all agreed to make a commitment to be accountable to share the gospel with one new person a month. Now talk to us, find out how we're doing, who we're sharing the gospel with. Ask us how we're doing it. Ask if you can do it with us. But be encouraged. Make that same commitment. And when you share the gospel, share with new people. Evangelizing your two-year-old every time you spank them doesn't count. (laughs) But by all means, do that anyway. But brothers and sisters, let's do. If you are not a fisher of men, if you are not faithful to that task, God will forgive you. He can overlook that. But make a commitment here and now to commit yourself to Christ's authority, to commit yourself to Christ's instruction, and to commit yourself to labor as a fisherman. And by God's grace, he will transform you into a soul winner. Let's pray. Father God, we do come before you, and we ask for you to change and to transform us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, has no idea what it means to win souls or no heart to do so that you'll convict them of that, challenge them, and help them to repent. For those of us who have been unfaithful, Lord, may we know that we can put it behind us, and, and we just thank you for, our, for your patience and for your grace. And may we just cling to you for a fresh start. Lord, we know that you are so patient and how you took three years to transform the disciples into soul winners. And Lord, we submit ourselves to your process. Coach us, teach us, train us to become fishers of men. And Lord, as we do, might you bless this church with new and fresh converts and bring revival to the city of Burbank. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for those